Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we are reviewing The Happiness Equation by Neil Pazricha. Want nothing plus do anything equals have everything. That's a happiness equation. Obviously, we do a lot of business books, a lot of books, uh, you know, strategy-wise, but we need to add a bit of happiness into our lives. Everyone needs happiness. Happiness, man, it's important. I think it's really underrated. Like, having a happy life is a pretty big thing, I think. Unfortunately, pretty elusive as well. It's... um. You know, I don't think a lot of people are that happy. I totally agree with that. It's not really uh, hard to see that, especially on the Monday morning on the train. There's a lot of misery yeah. going around, man. Absolutely. Definitely. So, this is uh, this book has nine secrets to happiness and we're going to go through our favorites uh, as always. And the first secret with the clickbait title, the thing you must do before you can be happy. So, the way everyone thinks about happiness, this is the, the steps they go through. They think great work if they work hard, they'll become a big success and then they'd be happy. That's it. And if they study hard, then they'll get a great job and then they'll be happy. So it's this idea that somewhere in the future, if they do X, Y, and Z uh, under the rainbow, there'll be this pot of gold of happiness. Yeah, that's it. So a few examples, as you said, you know, work hard equals big success equals be happy. So maybe if you work overtime, then you get a promotion and then you become happy. So we're always thinking, okay, if we work, then we'll achieve and then we'll be happy. But he's saying that that model is completely broken because what we do instead, we do great work and then we get big success and then instead of getting to the third part, which is be happy, we just think, okay, what's the next thing we can aim for? And then we just go back to great work, big success, great work, big success. We actually never let ourselves get to happiness. I remember when I was at university, I was thinking, I'm studying so bloody hard for these exams. It's going to be so good when I finally get this bloody degree. Mate, I don't even remember that other than a few big yeah. nights out. I don't, I don't remember really. <laughs> and I'll tell you, you probably moment. don't remember those either. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> then straight after that, right, you're on to the next thing. Um, you know, in corporate, it's like, why stop at be director? So you might start as a graduate. Oh, it'd be great to be at um, you know, the next level. And then finally get to the director and then all of a sudden you want to be the VP. Mm. So it's a never-ending treadmill. Yeah, always. So we're always looking. And so what Neil says, instead of going great work, leads to big success, leads to be happy. He says, put the happiness first. So the new equation, the new system would be be happy, which leads to great work, which leads to big success. So if you're happy first, your work's going to be better. And when your work's better, then you achieve bigger success. Yes. And paradoxically, you actually are better when you're happy. Mm. So happy people, there was a Harvard Business Review report that showed that happy people are 31% more productive, have 37% higher salaries, and are three times as more creative than all the unhappy losers. <laughs> I like it. That is, mate. If you're unhappy, then you are a loser. So there's there's no Very point directly. just waiting to the end. Like every day you wake up, even if you've got a big day of work and there's a lot of um, shit you need to get through, there's no, there's no reason really not to be happy in the first place and as you do it. It's a 100%. choice. So why is it so hard to be happy? He says that everybody has this negative self-talk. You know, we always are thinking negative thoughts. It's... Not something we can change. But he says that the issue comes not in having negative thoughts, but thinking that we shouldn't have negative thoughts. So if we think we shouldn't have negative thoughts and then we have negative thoughts, then we fail. So only until the last few centuries, the entire aim in human species was for food and safety and to reproduce. That's it. If we didn't have food or safety, we'd die, obviously, until you know a couple hundred years ago. 
So the amygdala had a huge role to play in our evolution. So we were all so our fear really led us to uh, um, secure these these primary goals that we really needed to function. But today uh, we live in a different world now where this doesn't really um, need to run our lives so much. Yeah, if you're listening to this podcast, I think it's probably a safe bet to say that you've got food in abundance, you've got safety in abundance. You're not running away from lions. Yeah, exactly. And so now what we think, okay, food. Chick, we can tick that goal. Safety, we can tick that goal. The next thing we need to be is happy. And so we think that now rather than... It used to be if we don't have food, we're going to die. Now it's like if we're not happy, we feel like we're going to die. And so if you know we're putting so much pressure on ourselves to be happy and be happy and be happy that uh, it's really not working out for us. So the big thing right now is that the fear is just still just lurking around in our heads, right? Mm. So in the Eastern kind of philosophies, they have a really different approach to, ha- to happiness and health and all these things so rather than avoid pain and avoid the negative and avoid disease they really try to bring up the baseline of health and the baseline of happiness yeah bang on derek sivers did a cool ted talk it's like a three minute one and he says that there's some villages in china where they pay their doctor every month when they're healthy because obviously the doctor's job is to make you healthy so when you're healthy you pay the doctor when you're sick the doctor's failed it's their job to make you healthy so you don't pay them the doctor makes you better so Rather than in the West, where when, we, when we're sick, we go to the doctor to find the problems, that's when we pay them. So, it's a completely different look. And what it means is that we're constantly looking for problems and looking for ways to fix problems. Rather than thinking, what do we actually have and what can we be happy about? We're looking to see what's wrong. And that's why, obviously, we're not so happy because we're always looking for problems. Mm. If you search for problems, you're going to find problems, aren't you? Ooh, yeah. That's how it works. So, there's a Quote by Big Charles Swindoll, who's a Texan preacher. (laughs) We're all very fond of, aren't we? But he calls it attitudes. And he says that I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens and it's 90% how I react. Exactly. If you you dial down all our circumstances, that's really only 10% of our lives. The other 90% is how we react. And that's what we've got control over. We can't control the 10% of the circumstances, but we can control 90%, which is our reactions to those circumstances. So if I had uh, an understanding of some of the things about your life, your marital status, your wealth, where you live and so forth, you could only really predict only 10% of how happy they are. The real 90% is really on their attitude and actually how you perceive things. Bang on. Yeah, bang on. And it's going to make a lot more sense um, a bit later in our review as well, especially for us in Western countries. So if someone, if you're walking down the street and someone yells out, you're a, you're a cunt or something along those lines, some people, it will ruin their day, it'll ruin their week, um, everything's, everything, the, the world's ending. Whereas some people could just walk on all day and they wouldn't even remember it as they go to sleep that night. That's it. Two very different reactions. Same circumstance, two different reactions. (laughs) And you want to be the one who doesn't have the bad reaction and just hang on to shit all the time. That one wasn't in our script, mate, but um, good example. (laughs) So, okay. So, now that we've talked about how most people aren't happy uh, and how hard it is to be happy, Neil gives us a couple of simple ways, a few simple things that we can do to be more happy. And so, he's given us seven things here. One of my favorites is what he calls three walks. So, researchers at Pennsylvania State University did this report and they found that people who are more physically active are more excited, they're more enthusiastic and overall they're happier. And their key finding was that three half an hour walks a week drastically improved your happiness. So, if you're not doing much exercise and you simply add in three half an hour walks each week, you're going to be a lot happier. So, a simple action 
rather than grabbing your lunch from the fridge and sitting at your desk and eating it, go outside and walk around for 30 minutes and you're going to significantly improve your happiness. Yeah, that's pretty low-hanging fruit to do something as big as improving your happiness. So another thing you can actually do, um, maybe a little bit more difficult, is hitting flow. And this is some of the research done and it's come up a lot for us by Mihal Chick, Chick Sent Me High or something like that. That was pretty close. Chick Sent Me High. Uh, who it's all about getting in the zone. So you want to be doing tasks and work that push you quite a bit, but not too hard. So it's just that um, Goldilocks kind of tasks that are challenging, but not too hard. Um, and then you get really pushed. And then because of that, there's uh, special chemicals that go through your brain and so forth. Um, so you don't want to be doing easy jobs, basically. Do shit that's challenging. Another idea he says is random acts of kindness. And uh, I think it's an arbitrary number, but he says if you can do five random acts of kindness each week, it's going to dramatically improve your happiness. So a few simple ones could be if you you know you go buy a coffee and then you give me an extra five bucks and say, hey, can I pay for the the person two people behind me? He says not not directly behind you, but say two behind you, so it's more random. Um, you can mow your neighbor's lawn. You can write a thank you note to the the doorman of your building or the receptionist. Just simple things like that that take thirty seconds of your time and just it makes them feel good and it makes you feel really good as well. Really like that one. Another one, uh, he says two-minute meditations, but you could probably extend this to meditation in general. And what meditation does, it really develops the part of the brain that is associated with self-awareness and compassion. So um, better known as like the prefrontal cortex. So when you develop these parts of the brain, um, your parts of your brain that are associated with stress, like the the amygdala shrinks instead. So your brain that's prefrontal cortex that isn't so reactive is bigger, so then you actually have a better compassion and better self-awareness. Nice. Another one he says is the complete unplug. So that's saying that, you know, similar to deep work that we spoke about recently, that you need to switch off from these constant distractions and constant interruptions. So, you know, turn your phone off. When you, when you finish dinner, turn your phone off and you're done for the night. Or on the weekend, turn the internet off so you're not constantly checking email. So just have time where you completely unplug and aren't, I guess, connected. Another one that's very popularized but it's really good is the five gratitudes. So every day, find five things you're actually grateful for, whether you're just thinking it in your head or you're writing them down or you're talking to a loved one about it. Um, There's a lot of good things that happen every single day, but in the moment, you don't really, uh, I guess, fully notice what's happening. So at the end of the day, with a bit of reflection, you can find out um, the day that you had Mm. was actually fantastic. Nice. And that's the first secret he's got to happiness here. And I like this quote towards the end of this section. He says that happy people don't have the best of everything, but they make the best of everything. So again, that's bringing back to this is within your control and it is your choice to be happy first rather than delaying your happiness and waiting to achieve success first before you're happy. You can simply choose to change your reactions to things and be happy first. So what we said at the start, most people go around thinking, all right, great work. If I work hard, I'll become a big cess, then I'll be happy. Nah. Flip that around, be happy and work and you'll probably be more successful anyway by being happy in the process. Nice. So that was secret one. Be happy first. That's chicken dinner. <laughs> secret two. Uh, <laughs> again, the clickbait title for this uh, chapter is do this and criticism can't touch you. So there's two types of motivation that really can get you to do anything and it comes down to extrinsic and intrins- intrinsic motivation and you want to be the one who's motivated intrinsically. Yeah. Dan Pink's book Drive that we did at the very, very start of this podcast over two years ago was saying that, look, extrinsic's okay in some very small circumstances, but when you're really going to do really great work is when you're intrinsically motivated. 
So a few examples, he says, you know, if you start a blog, write the blog for yourself, not for the external goal of having a million readers or something. Or if you write a book, write a book that you want to write, not a book just to hit the New York Times bestseller list. So having these internal goals rather than these external goals, then you're going to be less affected by criticism. He's got a really cool story about this dude here who had this really big problem that every day these kids would uh, stroll past and start hurling abuse at this old old poor man. <laughs> but this old poor man was a wise man also. And he said, righto kids, come back tomorrow and yell insults at me on my porch and I'll give you all $1 each. <laughs> they would love that. And these kids are like, fuck, yeah, $1, we can go and buy candy. <laughs> we can so, go hurl abuse at this crazy old dude. This crazy old and man. And we get paid for it. Fuck yeah, yeah. how good is that? And then <laughs> the next day, they yelled, hurled abuse at him. They got paid. Fantastic. And then one day, he actually says to them, righto, boys, the, uh, the going rate's down to 25 cents per day, but keep doing it. So um, all of a sudden... They came back the next day, mate. They came, All of a sudden, the kids came back the next day and they yelled out again, but then the, the old man, he said, thank you, guys. Woohoo! Please come back again tomorrow. But this time, I can only afford you five cents this time. So, it's 20 times less than the original. And then the kids thought, no, nah, sorry, old man. You're not worth that. <laughs> Man, it's a good example of um, turning an intrinsic motivation. So, earlier, they just uh, wanted to yell abuse at this old dude because they were uh, internally motivated. But when he started making it an extrinsic reward, a, a dollar figure... Uh, it completely flicked the switch. They no longer had that intrinsic drive to do it. And once that external reward was all but gone, uh, it wasn't worth it to them any, anymore. So that's a, a funny example of how uh, extrinsic motivation is really nowhere near as effective as intrinsic motivation. So you want to always be looking for that internal goals, not the external. So all of a sudden, when you start doing something for money, uh, all of a sudden, you're doing it for int- extrinsic reasons. So if there's no money there, you actually might actually more motivated if it's all intrinsically driven only like for us personally we're doing this podcast it's all intrinsic we're not making uh, money off it um if it was extrinsic maybe we wouldn't be as motivated to do it and all our podcasts would turn to shit anyway what it really ultimately comes down to all of this is we shouldn't be doing it for money we shouldn't be doing it to please other people really we should just do it for ourselves so whatever you do do it for you Mm. four simple words you're not relying on anyone else's uh, opinions and everything. You're just free from that. You're just doing it for you. And you're probably going to find that your self-esteem has a uh, fair boost as well. Love it. The third shit. secret, remember the lottery. Mm. We're not talking about going out and buying uh, lotto tickets. There's a different sort of lottery we're talking about here. I think it's going to make sense soon. Uh, so every day, right, there's going to be a, there's a war that goes on inside your head. On one side of the equation, you have the amygdala. The oldest part of the brain, it's responsible for scanning for problems, releases adrenaline when you see a problem and when you get stressed, and it sends you into flight or fight. On the other side of your brain, you have the prefrontal cortex. And what that does is it's part of the serenity mood tape and uh, kind of regulates all your emotion and so forth. So it's a war between these two things, and you really can't control it all the time what's going down there. Yeah, exactly. It's the ancient part of our brain that just has these reactions to to keep us safe. So we've got that war between our reactions and our emotions. So we're reacting to bad things, trying to keep us level though with the emotions. There's another war as well inside of our head, and that's a war between more and enough. So obviously, we're always striving for more, whether that's more money, more status, more power, whatever we're striving for more of. Uh, and that's in direct conflict with having enough. 
So obviously that's a, another war that goes on inside our head, which uh, is which conflicts with happiness. If we're always looking for more, we're never going to get to having enough, which would be happiness. More is just a treadmill. We've talked about the head-on mm. treadmill before. You jump on it, you're never going to get off. Um, you're just going for that next thing. And he has a good story here where he talks about uh, a person who was a, a billionaire who just wanted more and more and more. You know, they're probably going to be inherently very unhappy. Whereas you could have someone on the other side of the world, right, who's just a, I don't know, an Indian farmer. And for them, they've got enough. Yeah. And you ask them both who's happier, you'd almost certainly say the person who says they've got enough. Yeah, definitely. A, a, a couple of historic quotes here. One is from Epictetus. He says that wealth consists of not, not in having great possessions, but in having few wants. And a Persian proverb that says, I cried because I had no shoes until I met a man with no feet. And a more recent one, the Rolling Stones. You can't always get what you want, but sometimes you might find that you get what you need. Yeah. And so that's not, uh, we keep wanting more and more and more and more, but what we need is enough. So what is the lottery? So why have you won the lottery according to Neil? So in terms of, uh, if you think of the anthropic principle, when there's all these um, constants in physics, there's uh, you know maybe a hundred different constants that are very precise. If they were off by only 1%, again, the universe wouldn't go into existence. Uh, if you move a bit further into evolution, there's all these different events that led to extinctions, extinctions of different species on our planet. If any of those didn't happen, um, then you might have dinosaurs who are talking and doing this podcast and so forth. Then again, if you move a little bit further into history and a bit more recently, if any of your grandparents or your great-grandparents or if you go down any of the line of your ancestors, if they had uh, a few more beers that night and didn't root their missus <laughs> and that one sperm out of a million out of that whole bloodline didn't pop out, then you wouldn't be here as well. So in terms of lottery, you've probably won a million different lotteries mm. just to get here. It's so freaking unlikely. It's unbelievable. Oh, 100%, man. He says that there's... So beyond that, it's so improbable, like infinitely improbable that you would be alive in the first place. Another thing he says that there's about 7 billion people alive right now and there's 108 billion people that are dead. So if you're still alive, you're also part of this winning lottery. He also says that, say, in the, the world average income is $5,000 per year. So if you're earning more than that, you're doing pretty well. He says that if you're earning more than $50,000 per year, you're in the top 0.5% of the planet so being in the you know a lucky country listening to this there's probably a good chance that you're in at least the top one percent of the entire planet so there's another lottery that you've won just there as well if you just think about all the westerners out there who always protest about oh stop the one percent stop the one percent and they're whinging like they're uh, you know so entitled mate you're the fucking one percent they're in it, <laughs> they're in it. <laughs> you are the one percent <laughs> right and I, I guarantee they probably don't donate to the, the other 99% either yeah, exactly. or anything like that. Within their country, they might not be in the top 1%. But if you if you broaden your horizons a little bit and look to the whole planet, they're doing pretty bloody well. Anyone listening right now is probably doing bloody, bloody well. Yeah, exactly, man. So, so that's when it comes down to it, you know, stop, step back, push out those negative thoughts of always wanting more and realize that you've already won a hell of a lot of lotteries and you're pretty lucky. Mm. So whenever anything bad happens to you, he says, just remember these three words and it'll get you out of a dark place. The next secret, he says, never retire. Mm. Bit of a counterintuitive thing because, uh, you know, everyone expects to retire someday, you know, we're slogging through work and we'll get to that pot of gold at the end where we've got a, all our money saved up and we can stop working for the rest of our lives and just enjoy retirement. But he says that's a that's a pretty bad outlook on life. So retirement is a concept 
that us Westerners came up with. And if we look at what the world might be without retirement, we can actually look at this tribe or this culture called the Okinawa, uh, who actually live an average of seven years longer than all Americans and have the longest disability-free life expectancy on Earth, which is pretty bloody good. Where is Okinawa from? Is it Japan, I think? It's Japan. Yeah. So the ancient Chinese legends call these people the land of the immortals and so forth. So they're absolutely legendary. They're around forever. Um, it's not rare to live past 100 for these uh, blokes and girls. You know what the difference is? Or one, one key difference, if you ask someone from Okinawa, how do I say uh, retirement in Japanese? There actually is no word for retirement. Uh, they never, you know, retirement means to stop working altogether. There's no such thing in Okinawa. Instead, they have this thing called ikigai. And what ikigai is, is just a, essentially it's a, it's a reason for living. It's a reason for waking up in the morning and going out into the world and doing what you got to do. That's your ikigai. There is a 102-year-old karate master whose ikigai is to carry forth this martial art. There's a 100-year-old fisherman whose ikigai is to feed his family. And there's a 102-year-old ikigai to carry her ikigai is to carry her great 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 granddaughter well, in that case. Yeah. So this idea that they've got a purpose and ikigai, um, that's what their end of life entails. Every day, there's an absolute reason for getting up and doing something and contributing really to something a little bit greater than themselves. As we said, they've still got that at 100 years old. Whereas if we think to the West, I think it was uh, 1895 that the Germans created retirement. Fucking Germans. And so, the, <laughs> and so the, the goal here is for us to stop working altogether. And then what do we do for the rest of that? We don't know. Whereas the Japanese are constantly working in the sense that they've got this ikigai that they're always, they've got a direction in life. There's, they've always got a reason to wake up in the morning. They've always got a reason to go out into the world and do something that day. Mm. There's a little bit of conspiracy here, which we always love. And he says how, uh, so it, the idea of retirement started in Germany at the age of 67 when the average lifespan was 67. So it's unlikely that you're going to retire for long anyway. But the way it was brought into the West... The concept was really glamorized by all the marketing companies uh, who try to make every adult, every older adult feel like they have a right to it. So the insurance companies deeply involved in the pension business got into the act of mass advertisement of retirement preparation classes that encourage people to, um, when they hang up the boots, they sit there with their feet up and then they sip on uh, cocktails and their whole life purpose is done and they've really... Uh, useless to the rest of society. <laughs> Correct, mate. It's only this idea of retirement's only 120, 130 years old, and it's really just like, what do we do at the end of this? We go and, as you say, go on the go on a cruise or sit by the beach, and it's horrible. He man. says it's actually pretty bad for you in terms of your lifespan. Like it's not having any purpose in life is really a big detriment to your health, and that you you get pretty sick of that pretty quickly. Even though we, you know, for 40 years, we've been building up to this idea that we're going to have, you know, we've saved up all this money and it's just going to be a nice, relaxing 40 years of the rest of our life. But really, it's a, it's a real drainer to not have anything to do every Mate, day. Mate, it's, it's so sad, right, to think that they've lived their whole life, they've gathered all these skills and wisdom, and then our whole culture just looks at these people and the expectation is they're useless. They hit mm. that age, hang up the boots, and you're cooked, you're done, you're not adding anything more when they're probably at a time in their lives when they should be giving a lot back to the world. Exactly. And the alternative approach, the solution to this is that idea of the icky guy and just having a reason to um, do something every day. You know, Even if it's not work, what can you do as well that is, uh, you know, provides direction and provides something to do, provides something to be productive in? I think he's got really incredible advice here. So a common thing for us all over in, 
you know, in, in the US, you got your 401ks. For here, we save in our superannuation planning for retirement. But he kind of has a, a real look at it from a social point of view, right? You should be choosing careers that you don't have to retire from mm. in the first place. So he hints at the suggestion that you right now as you're younger, rather than just saving up money for the future, you should be making the decisions now that you're future-proofing yourself when you're into your 60s, 70s and 80s. So you're building your skills up so you can actually be doing something you enjoy the whole time and then you mm. actually don't have to retire ever rather than doing something now where you get paid more and then but you have a finish line. So choose something now what the finish line um, doesn't really exist. Yeah, nice. Rather than in just investing money so that we're going to be financially secure in the future, we should be rather like investing our time and efforts into finding something we don't have to retire from so that we've constantly got that that social and that that structure in our life to keep doing something that something that we don't hate every day that we have to stop doing at some point. I really I like, like that chapter, yeah. man. Never retire. It's important. Fucking fantastic. <laughs> and the Germans, you should have never come up with it. <laughs> Sorry guys. <laughs> no, we've uh, I think we've definitely taken that that on for our for our own as well, mate. We can't fully blame them. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> we'll go consp- we'll blame the marketing companies. <laughs> the next uh the next secret and the clickbait title here is how to make more money than a Harvard MBA. And so what he says is that, you know, Harvard makes you feel rich. They've got a, you know, fantastic campus, you know, there's trees and there's lawn and there's, you know, there's big wooden doors and brown leather couches and expensive art and state-of-the-art gym. It makes you feel rich being there. And he says it actually makes you rich when you leave because the average American salary is 24000 a year. The Harvard grad's first year out salary is 120000 a year. So the first year you finish at Harvard, you're going to make five times the average salary. So aside from making you feel rich, it also makes you actually rich in terms of money in the bank. But he says there's an important way here to realize that maybe it's not all it's cracked up to be and maybe there's a way that we can actually make more money than a Harvard MBA. So on the surface, that uh, that's probably the amount of digging all of us do. Oh, mm. shit, they're making 120K and they're making five times of us. Fantastic. I want to do what they do. But when you do that little bit of digging uh, from an anecdotal at from an anecdotal point of view, Neil called some of his friends who went to Harvard to see what they're up to. First of all, he called Mark, who's a management consultant. He flies out early Monday, flies home late Thursday night, um, visiting the client. Friday, working on write-up everything. Basically, he's working 85 hours a week. Chris, another one, he's a principal at a massive private school, works 7 a.m. till 9 p.m., plus a few hours on the weekend. Again, working in the 80 to 90 hour range. And Sonia, another one, a silicon working for a Silicon Valley tech giant. Again, eighty hours a week. Massive, just a lot of time, man. When uh, if you think about it, so they're all thinking that they're making one hundred twenty thousand dollars per year. And if you think of it that way, it makes sense. Yeah, okay, for every year I'm making one hundred twenty thousand dollars. But the 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 maths there is a bit off because we're not just sort of like working the same amount of one year. That one year is very different for everybody. So if you're thinking, okay, I'm a Harvard MBA, I'm making 120000 per year. Let's say you get your two weeks vacation as the average in the US. So you're working 85 hours a week for 50 weeks of the year. You're working 4,250 hours per year. If you divide $120,000, you're really making about $28 per hour. Now, he gives an example of, say, a retail assistant manager. They're making 70000 per year, but they're only working 50 hours per week. So they're making about $28 per hour. If you look at a teacher, they're making $45,000 per year, but they get 12 weeks of holiday per year. They work, say, 40 hours per week. And when you do the maths, they make about $28 per mm. hour. 
Mate, absolutely. Everyone's going to look at the hourly rate. Uh, in Australia, I know some people who, you know, studied law, a really reputable kind of um, career path, and they're probably in the third or fourth year. They might be on 80 grand a year, but, mate, they're probably doing 80 plus hours, and they're mm. probably on less than minimum wage when you actually break it down. So this is actually what we should be looking at because it's the time we're generating and giving, not this abstract kind of yearly wage salary kind of idea. So he says that if we look at it rather than per year, instead if we look at it per hour, there's two ways you can make more than a Harvard MBA. One is to make more money and one is to work less hours. So if you're working less hours, if you think about the dude or the lady who's working 80, 85 hours per week, pretty much their whole life is sleep and work. Whereas if you're doing a career where you have, you're working 35 to 40 hours a week, you've got sleep, you've got work, and then you've got this third bucket of time that you can do whatever you want to do. And so if work is everything in your life and you don't have that third bucket which you can choose to do other things you enjoy perhaps that's not the best uh, career for you may i just uh, this is absolutely on the fly but looking at this equation in terms of how much you earn as dollars per hour if you want a 10 percent pay rise and you work 50 hours a week rather than up the dollar part take 10 percent off there work 45 mm. hours a week and there's your, then you, there's like your 10% it. pay rise. You can do like that it. now. That could be uh, rather than if you are in the point where you want to negotiate a pay rise rather than saying, can I get a, a 10 grand pay rise? Maybe it's a, a nine-day fortnight where you get that extra one day a week. So rather than going 10% more dollars, you get 10% less time. Uh, that's, a, that's still a pay rise if you're looking at it per hour and you can do, you got a free day to do something else. Love it. Or um, if you've taken zero sickies per year, you take 10 sickies, that's two weeks. It's another pay rise. I don't, I don't take sickies at all, mate. If my boss is listening, yeah, no, me, mate. never, never a fakey, mate. They're always real. You've you've whipped out a few, haven't you? No, nah, always. You've no. whipped out a few serious ones. I've seen you. I like it, but that's that's another secret to happiness. Is he says overvalue you, so don't undervalue your time by just thinking oh, I'm making so much money, but you're not using any time. Uh, he says that a different way to look at it is to look at how much free time do I have to do what I want to do and use work to support what you want to do rather than just constantly working all day every day. Yeah, I really like that one as well. So the final one, the final secret we really enjoyed is how to turn your biggest fear into your biggest success. Yeah, I like it. Uh, I don't know why he went, he went a lot of clickbaity titles, but I suppose they, they draw you in. Mate, I, I like how he says, most people think that there's a do line, as in a do line, and that do line goes, firstly, you believe that you can do it. Next, you think that you want to do it. And then finally, you do it. So that's the line. So he thinks that in order to do something, you have to first believe that you can. Second, you have to have the inspiration to want to do it. And then finally, you eventually do it. Now, he says that that's actually a crock of shit. And instead, it's a do circle. And it circles around do first. And then it goes to you believe you can do. And then you want to do it. And then you do it. And then you can do it. And then you want to do it. So it's a circle. Whereas if you actually start at the do, by doing it first, you actually then get the belief that you can do it. With that belief, then you want to do it and then you do it more. So rather than just thinking belief first and then inspiration, then do, do it first. Mm. It's a little bit like the fixed mindset. So people with a fixed mindset think that to be able actually to have any ability at something, you need the first thing can do to actually start that uh, process of want to do, then you do it and then you're in the circle. But what they're saying here is just do it first. So say with the example of public speaking, if you suck and you're scared, just do it first. Um, then you all of a sudden want to do it. Then all of a sudden you can do it. And then uh, you start again. Then you do it and then you can. And then you're all of a sudden on the cycle. But again, it's just like just jumping up first. It is going to be a little bit risky. You are going to fail 
a little bit at first, but once you're in that process, all of a sudden you're going to be um, getting good at stuff. And this is really the way to acquire skills and get good at anything. Definitely. It's like the old cliche, fake it till you make it, or like the Nike slogan, just do it. He says that most people think you need motivation first in order to start doing something. But in reality, if you start doing something first, that leads to the motivation to want to keep doing it. So we're all looking at this the wrong way. And rather than thinking, do I have the belief to have the motivation before I do it? Just fucking do it first. Yeah, just do it. Everyone, everyone, it is different, but we all probably at every stage in our lives have an it mm. about something that you kind of want to do. Um, and you know, you should be doing it, but it's scary or something. I think you just, just fucking do it anyway. And then all, before you know it, it's uh, you're into the, the circle of uh, learning to become more competent at it. That's it. He says that, you know, most people think it's easier said than done, but he said it's actually easier done than said because once you get out there and do it first, if you don't have time for your brain to kick over and think uh, for the fear to set in and you do it first and you're on your way. Mm. Mate, so it's a good book, man. It really is. So, in summary, the things that we've talked about today is be happy first. Don't wait for that shit. Yeah. <laughs> Number two, do it for you. Number three, remember the lottery. You're a fucking lucky bastard to be here right now. Number four is never retire. Um, choose a Nicky guy. Have a purpose. Have a reason to be here and contribute to something bigger than yourself. Number five is overvalue you. Uh, look at your hourly rate as dollars per hour. Value your time enough to not just give it away and just have the abstract idea of a salary for your time. And the final one is just fucking do it. I like it. Mate, I, I, as I said, it's a simple book. And I really like that it's got these. It's got pretty profound lessons without whacking you over the head with it. It sort of like sneaks in from behind. It doesn't say this is exactly what you got to do. It sort of lays out these stories, and then you realize, hang on, this is what he's actually teaching me without actually whacking me over the head with it. And I think it was a, a couple of profound lessons. There's in there. a few jabs. It's like really cheeky. You just be just jab, 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 yep. <laughs> and before you know it, you've um, been worn down by a few Neil Neil specials. <laughs> <laughs> the Neil specials. So we're going to speak to the past reach man and uh, learn a bit more about happiness. Looking forward to that. We both surprisingly like this book more than we thought, actually. And we've decided to make this one our book of the month for November. So we've gone pretty heavy in that we went to 48 Laws of Power and then we went to 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. This is a much a different book to give you a different perspective on life. Everyone needs to be happy. So if you're part of the book club, what we do is we send a hard copy of the book to your door every single month. And then we have a little group conversation at the end of the month to talk about some of the lessons. So if you want to join the conversation... Head to whatyouwillearn.com slash book club.